Section 1 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D. Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. Chapter 1. Churchill's Early Years, Part 1. John Churchill was born at Ash in Devonshire on the 24th of June, 1650. His father, Winston Churchill, was a cavalier who throughout the stormy days of the Commonwealth remained faithful to the cause of the Stuarts. On this account, his family estate of Minturn was burdened by Parliament with a fine so heavy that he could not possibly pay it, and his estate was sequestrated. At the Restoration, there seemed a hope of more prosperous days for Winston Churchill. His estate of Minturn was given back to him, and he was soon after knighted. He was returned to Parliament and received some trifling appointments about court. He amused himself with the pursuit of literature and published a work called Dewey Britanniki, a ridiculous panegyric on royalty. But though regarded with favor by Charles II, on account of his persistent loyalty, Sir Winston Churchill remained in needy circumstances and had not much money to spend on the education of his children. Before the Restoration, John, his eldest surviving son, had been taught by his father and a neighboring clergyman. Afterwards, when his father came to London, he was for a short time a scholar at St. Paul's School, where, however, he did not stay long enough to get any literary training and remained, all his life, entirely wanting in book-learning. Sir Winston Churchill thought it well to make speedy use of the favor he enjoyed at court, and soon after the Restoration took John away from school to place him as page of honor with the Duke of York, the king's brother, and John's sister, Arabella, was made maid of honor to the first Duchess of York, Anne Hyde. In this way the fortunes of Sir Winston's children were secured. John's interest in military matters was soon noticed by the Duke of York. One day, struck by the eagerness with which he saw his page watch him direct the exercise of two regiments of foot guards, the Duke asked him what profession he would choose for himself. The boy threw himself on his knees before his master and begged that he might be given a pair of colors in one of those fine regiments. His wish was soon fulfilled, and at the age of sixteen, in the year 1666, he got his commission and went out to Tangiers with his regiment. Tangiers then, a dependency of the English crown, was being besieged by the Moors, and in the chance skirmishes of the siege, Churchill eagerly seized every opportunity of showing his valor and zeal for his profession. He was recalled the same year by the Duke of York and continued for some time in attendance upon his master at court. Churchill was well fitted to shine amongst the gay and profligate crowd of courtiers who surrounded the pleasure-loving Charles II. He was tall and well-made, with fine features, fascinating manners, and an indolent grace which had great charm. He soon showed his ability to rule men. He combined such perfect dignity of manner with so entire a command of temper that even when he was young and insignificant, none dared take a liberty with him. The proud beauties of the court looked with much favor upon the handsome young soldier, 
and the Duchess of Cleveland, one of Charles II's mistresses, regarded him with special interest. Once he was nearly surprised alone with her by the king, but Churchill's presence of mind did not fail him, and he leapt from the window to avoid discovery. The Duchess rewarded him for this bold feat by a present of five thousand pounds. Though he might be gay and giddy, Churchill already showed that care of money which became such a ruling passion with him in after life, and prudently invested his five thousand pounds in buying an annuity. Churchill's advancement was also greatly aided by the favor with which the Duke of York regarded his sister Arabella. James's love for her made him willing to do all in his power for her brother. In 1672, Churchill was sent to Holland with his regiment, which formed part of a detachment of 6,000 men, who were led by the Duke of Monmouth, Charles II's natural son, to aid Louis XIV, King of France, against the Dutch. For some time, Europe had watched with alarm the growing power of Louis XIV. His ambition seemed boundless, and it was hard to see what power existed in Europe sufficiently strong to oppose his schemes. The decaying monarchy of Spain, weak and unmanageable through its vast possessions when not held together by a firm hand, had ceased to be of any account in the affairs of Europe. It was well known that the end of Louis XIV's ambition was to add the Dutch provinces to his dominions, and on the death of the sickly and childless king of Spain, to seat his own grandson on the Spanish throne, and so add that vast kingdom to the dominions of the House of Bourbon. It was clear that nothing could resist him but a firm union of the remaining powers of Europe. Sir William Temple, English resident at The Hague, and one of the ablest diplomatists of those days, early tried to impress this upon Charles II, and succeeded in persuading him to conclude in 1668 an offensive and defensive alliance with Holland and Sweden called the Triple Alliance. But Charles II cared little for foreign politics. The balance of power in Europe was nothing to him compared with ease at home and freedom to do as he liked. Louis XIV spared no pains to win from the ranks of his enemies a monarch whose neutrality, could he get nothing more, would be of great importance to him in the future. He promised to grant Charles II a large subsidy which would free him from the control of his parliament by taking away the need for its grants if Charles II would aid him in his projects against Holland and Spain. In 1670, the Triple Alliance was replaced by the secret Treaty of Dover between Charles II and Louis XIV. Under Cromwell, England had once more become a power of the first rank in Europe, and the policy of the Triple Alliance would have enabled her to remain so. But Charles II chose to become a cipher in European politics and take up the ignominious position of Louis XIV's pensioner, rather than submit to what he considered the vexatious and unwarrantable interference of Parliament in the conduct of affairs. The result of the Treaty of Dover was that in 1672 England joined France in making war upon Holland. Charles II, that he might have his hands free, 
first of all dissolved Parliament in 1671, because in Parliament there was a strong party which would never allow an attack upon Holland, which they looked upon as the bulwark of Protestantism. Even before war had been declared, Charles II treacherously gave his admirals orders to attack a richly laden fleet of Dutch merchantmen on their way back from Smyrna. But the Dutch had learned to be suspicious, even in time of peace, and were secretly prepared for an attack. The English were beaten back with heavy loss and only succeeded in capturing two vessels. After this, war was declared. The conduct of the war at sea was to be left to the English fleet, to which Louis the Fourteenth contributed a squadron, whilst Charles the Second sent some troops under Monmouth to assist the French army. It was with these troops that Churchill went to gain his first experience of a real campaign. Soon after reaching the continent, he was made a captain of grenadiers in Monmouth's own regiment, and found abundant opportunity for gaining experience and distinction. Louis the Fourteenth nominally commanded the French army himself, but the direction of its movements was really left to the two greatest generals of the day, the Prince of Condé and Marshal Turenne. Condé, a brilliant military genius, knew how to seize an opportunity which to others seemed hopeless, and to snatch victory from an astonished enemy whilst they rested confident in their strength. Turenne was a profound master of strategy. He was cold and phlegmatic, with the face and appearance of a bourgeois, and did not look like one born to command men. He does not seem ever to have been stirred by any spark of passion. Nothing could rouse him to excitement, nor even ruffle his imperturbable manner. The horrors of war awakened in him no sentiment of compassion. He gave himself body and soul to his country, and never allowed the influence of any personal ambition. Laborious and diligent himself, he demanded the same qualities in his soldiers. He did not treat them like machines, but tried to train each man to play his part thoroughly and soberly. With indefatigable energy, he superintended everything in the camp and in the field himself. He turned every man, every chance to account, and wasted neither resources nor money. Such was the man under whom Churchill learned the art of war. His native genius enabled him to appreciate Turenne's strategy and to learn from it those lessons which in the end made him a greater general than his master. Turenne soon discovered the abilities of the young Englishman. When at the siege of Nijmegen, a lieutenant colonel had scandalously deserted a post which he had been bidden to defend to the last, Turenne said, I will bet a supper and a dozen of claret that my handsome Englishman will recover the post with half the number of men that the officer commanded who lost it. He was not mistaken. Churchill drove out the enemy after a short and fierce struggle and maintained the post. At the siege of Maastricht, he so distinguished himself by the desperate valor with which he aided the Duke of Monmouth to recover a lodgment which had been recaptured by the enemy that he was publicly thanked for his services by Louis the Fourteenth at the head of the army. The victorious course of Louis the Fourteenth's army seemed to threaten the Dutch with total destruction. On sea they were at home, and could maintain an equal conflict with their enemies. Their great admiral, de Reiter, 
had engaged the English fleet in a fiercely contested battle in Southwold Bay, where neither side could claim the victory. But on land, the Dutch had only a miserable force of 25,000 raw soldiers to oppose to the magnificent armies of Louis XIV. Besides this, the United Provinces were divided amongst themselves. On one side was the dynastic faction, which upheld the claims of the House of Orange. On the other side, the aristocratic faction, at the head of which stood the pensionary de Witt. De Witt had long held the chief control of affairs, and the States-General had decreed the exclusion of the members of the House of Orange from the Stadtholdership. The command of the troops, however, was given to young William of Orange, the son of Prince William II of Orange, who had married Mary, daughter of Charles I, King of England. With his raw troops, William was unable to do anything to save his country. Louis XIV carried everything before him. De Witt offered terms of peace which seemed humble enough, but Louis XIV refused them and offered terms so humiliating that they could mean nothing but the destruction of the prosperity and the independence of the Republic. At this, the Dutch people rose in despair. They turned their anger first upon de Witt, whom they unjustly regarded as one of the causes of their desperate condition. Even their brave Admiral de Reiter was insulted in the streets, and the only man in whom they would confide was young William of Orange. The States-General were forced to cancel their own decree and name William Stadtholder. Soon afterwards, de Witt and his brother were murdered in the streets of Amsterdam by a furious mob. William showed himself equal to the terrible emergency. Both Charles II and Louis XIV tried by the most seductive promises to win him over from the cause of the Republic, but nothing could shake him. He rejected the terms offered by Louis XIV and gave orders that the dikes which kept the sea and the great rivers from overflowing the lowlands of Holland should be opened. The whole country became one vast lake, out of which the towns rose like islands. The invaders had to flee before the waters, and the Republic gained a brief respite in its danger. This gave the Emperor and the German princes time to come to the aid of the Dutch, and the theatre of war was enlarged. In 1673, Turenne commanded on the Rhine, and this campaign, though marked by no great victory, for he was badly supported, and opposed to a fine army under the imperial general Montecuculli, was one of his most brilliant feats of strategy. In 1673, Charles II had been forced to summon Parliament, for he was in need of money, and Louis XIV's own needs were too pressing for him to be able to aid his ally. Parliament vigorously attacked Charles II's policy during the recess, in which he had issued a declaration of indulgence to Roman Catholics and dissenters from the Church of England. He was now compelled to rescind this, and Parliament passed the Test Act, which compelled all persons holding any office to sign a declaration against transubstantiation and publicly receive the sacrament according to the rights of the Church of England. Parliament went on to compel the king to dismiss some of his ministers, and finally to urge him to make peace with the Dutch. 
to Sir William Temple was entrusted the task of concluding the peace, which was signed in February 1674. In spite of the peace, Charles II allowed the 6,000 troops which he sent to the French army to remain in Louis's service. Churchill's ability won him rapid advancement in the army. On the 3rd April, 1674, Louis XIV appointed him colonel of the English regiment, and he was present during Turenne's campaign on the Rhine. There he saw enough of the horrors of war, for the July and August of 1674 were devoted by Turenne to the total devastation of the Palatinate. He wished to make it impossible for the enemy to subsist there and threaten the French frontier. In these two months, one of the fairest provinces of Germany was reduced to a barren waste, with here and there the charred remains of cities and villages. But this terrible sight did not have the effect of making Churchill indifferent to the suffering produced by war. On the contrary, we shall find that when in supreme command himself, one of his first cares was always for the wounded, and that he could never see the miseries of an innocent population without an earnest desire for peace. End of section 1